Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Um, my name is Mike, and I'm just, I'm just, I want to look into your eyes this morning. I want to see the alertness. This is fantastic. Look at this. I feel the energy. This is amazing. Anyway, welcome to Journey Church. If you're new, hello. We always dress for spring here in our community. And so what is snow? It is just a momentary blip on the way to 60 degree weather this week. Although it was odd, and I'm from the Midwest, so complaining about the weather is our thing. Like that is our literal, if we had a college football team for the entire Midwest, the, the mascot would be, we complain about the weather person. Um, I'll never use that joke again. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's 64, 1 p.m., and then it's, you know, it's several inches of snow, and it's like, okay, all right, Jesus, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. I will not succumb to the temptation to put warm clothes back on. All right? So this is it right here. Timmons. Um, anyway, today we are going to continue on in our series uh, in the book of Matthew about the Sermon on the Mount called the Upside Down Kingdom. But before we get to the text that is relevant for us today, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 3. If you didn't see that coming, let's go. Exodus 3, boom. Moses. To say that Moses had some concerns, some questions, when he was invited by God to rescue the people out of slavery, would be an understatement. Moses, I mean, all sorts of things. It's just hilarious. The most reluctant deliverer in the history of deliverers. Um, at one point, Moses says, he has like five different objections, and, and one of them turns out to be this one. Moses said to God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, the religious climate of that day was that they were hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of pretender gods. And they all had names. And the names of the gods told you how they worked and how you would appease them. And so it was quite natural, being raised in Pharaoh's court, for Moses to ask this very question. And God responds, I am who I am. And if you're thinking, well, that's not really helpful, the, the root of that phrase in Hebrew just means to exist or to be. And so literally, it's like, God, what is your name? And God replies, well, in contrast to all the pretender gods, I actually am. I actually exist. I'm dependent upon nothing else for my existence except me. I'm just, it's my very nature to be real, in other words. Kind of a cool name. This is what I want you to say to the Israelites. Nope, if you would go back, Sarah. This is what I want you to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So when God refers to God's self, God uses the phrase, I am, which makes it so significant in the book of John when Jesus is defending himself and he keeps going, well, I am this and I am this. And, and I think it's John 8 
uh, I believe um, he announces before Abraham was, I am. And you're like, well, those people who say that never Jesus directly claimed to be God um, aren't aware really of what that passage is saying. So when God refers to himself, he says, I am, I exist. Next slide. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. Now hold that up there if you would for a second, Sarah. The, the, the English word Lord in all caps appears about 6,800 times in the Hebrew scriptures. And that is the transliteration of four Hebrew consonants. Y, H, V, or W, H. And we don't, they don't have, uh, they don't write vowels in Hebrew, but you pronounce them. And so we think that capital L-O-R-D stands for um, the name Yahweh. Now, we don't know how to pronounce it. Like I said, we, don't, we weren't given the pronunciation because the Jews stopped saying the name. But um, and, and, and Yahweh, the four consonants are called the tetragrammaton in Greek. It's just the coolest name for anything ever. And, and, and the idea is the, 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 the phrase or the word Yahweh means it's third person. So when God refers to God's self, he says, I am. When he tells Israel how to refer to him, he says, use these consonants, which mean he is. That's what Yahweh means. So it's third person instead of first person. I know that's incredibly clear. So let me say it again. When God refers to himself, I am. When the Israelites were supposed to refer to God, they would use the phrase, he is. That's what Yahweh meant. He is real. He exists. And God's name is a big deal to him. Like I said, 6,800 times. Whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's, that's the name Yahweh. So it's not a generic Lord but it is, a very, it is the specific name. And next slide, if you would, if there is one. This is my name, what? Forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. So it's a big deal to God. And the way names functioned in the ancient world, and this is super important, names didn't just stand for tags that you would call people. Like, when my parents named me Mike, they, they were not like dreaming of a Mike kind of life for me, right? It was just like, oh, well, that sounds good. We like that name. But in, in the Bible, names represent the essence of your character or your destiny or something that happened to you, right? Moses' name means to draw out because he was drawn out of the river. Isaac's name uh, means laughter because his mother was laughing in her old age that she would have a son, right? The name Jesus Yahshua is Yahweh saves. And so names have incredible significance. And so Moses says, God, what name shall I use when I go to the Israelites? And God says, I am that I am. I exist. But you shall refer, you shall refer to me as Yahweh. He is. Makes sense so far? Timmons? Thank you, dude. I'm doing good? All right, so far. There, sh there should be like a, like you know how when they do political debates, there's this uh, approval line that kind of comes under the screen. We should have a sermon approval line just so I know, you know, joke needed here. Um, 
Now, it's not surprising because God's name was a big deal that when we get to the 10 words or the 10 commandments later on in Exodus, that one of them concerns the use of God's name. Go ahead to Exodus 20. You shall not misuse the name of, and what's that? Yahweh. Of Yahweh your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, I was always taught, and Americans often believe that this is swearing. This is using the name of Jesus or using the name of God in some sort of profanity or vulgarity. That's not at all what this is about. Using the name poorly isn't a great idea anyway, but that's not what this commandment's about. The, the Hebrew literally is rendered, do not attach the name of God to an empty thing. And so there's this deep study. God attaches his name to people, and so your name can be attached in an empty way to you or to me. Like when people put a fish on their car and like drive horribly, right? That's attaching the name to an empty thing. All right, so... You, taking God's name in vain isn't how we were raised and it's the, the using of, of Jesus or God in a profane manner. Although, like we said, that's not a good idea. But back then, attaching God's name to things, the primary way God's name was attached to things was in oath formulas. When I would make a promise and I would say, you know, may God punish me, be it ever so severely. You see this all over the Old Testament. That is something called an oath formula. And an oath formula was a way, without contracts, was a way to, like, boister your promise to somebody else. We even do it today, like, I swear to God. Or I, I put my hand on the Bible, and I swear to all that's holy. Right? We do this, too. But back then, it was incredibly, incredibly prevalent. And so there were actual commands not to use God's name when you made oaths. So if you would, hit Leviticus. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God, I am, and who is this? Yahweh. One of the very interesting things is when you're reading through the Old Testament, just to substitute Yahweh anytime you see the Lord, and it changes the dynamic. Instead of just a general, the Lord, it's a very specific name that has a very specific meaning. Now, any questions on this so far? Awesome, I can feel your fascination. The energy keeps rising. I feel you more alert. Yes! Oh, that's a great question. Because they were afraid of misusing the name. So when God says, I will not, I will not hold anyone guiltless when they misuse my name... Um, the ever-creative Jewish rabbis came up with ways in which to refer to the name without actually saying the name. So, so literally, you'll read in the Old Testament a, a translation of a, a word called Hashem, which is literally just says the name. So in the Old Testament, sometimes God is referred to as the name. And they don't even say the name. Or that's where we get Adonai was with another substitute, or Jehovah was another substitute. So they would use all these substitutes because they didn't want to be guilty of breaking the command. Does that make sense? Great question, thank you. So there was a prohibition if misusing, yeah? Yeah. Why were they so afraid of misusing God's name? 
right? Remember the context in which the command was given, right? So where were the 10 commands given? Where were they given? Right, and, and what was the mood at Mount Sinai? De- yes, absolutely, great answer. At Sinai, the whole, the whole community of Israel was invited up to the top of the mountain and they refused to go. So Moses was actually sent in their stead. It was, the, the initial thing was the whole community would meet with God. But then all of a sudden there was smoke and fire and thunder and lightning. And so, and it says that Israel was afraid. And um, they record for us through their history that we call the Old Testament, times in which God's name was attached to an empty thing and God took that very seriously. So it was like the Sabbath. There were, there were, there were uh, consequences to breaking the commands that were staggering to them uh, that, that we don't feel the same weight of because of Jesus. Does that make sense? That's a great question. Man, you guys are awesome. Look at you. We lost an hour and we're still, we're still talking it up. I absolutely love that. All right, so God gives us his name. The name gets dropped for fear of misusing the name, but they come up with all these substitutes for the name. One of the empty things you would attach the name of Yahweh to early on was oaths, vows, And so there was in Leviticus uh, a commandment that said, don't use the name of God in the vows that you make. Now, if you're you're confused about what vow making was, here's a dumb example. Suppose Tim and I are neighbors, right? And we're both farmers. And um, and Tim's crop is growing way more uh, fruitfully than my crop is. And so I, I grow to resent Tim. And this is all true, by the way. I grow to resent Tim... I don't like him, I'm jealous of him. Exactly. Now one day, my favorite ox, the one that does most of the work in, in my field, goes missing. I don't have any evidence of where it's gone, I just know Tim did it, okay? Because he's that kind of person. And so, ox dealer, and so I go to the, to the local elders of the community and I say, Tim has stolen my ox. And initially they're kind of skeptical, but then I would say something like, I swear by the name of Yahweh and all that is holy that Tim stole my ox. Now, how have I used the name of Yahweh? How have I used it? I've used it to make them take me more seriously, correct? So so I've attached it to something even though I don't know for sure, I've attached it to something to make, and we do, like I said, we do this today. Pinky promise is what my son does, and so there you go. It's the, an oath formula. Put that down. Put that down, John. He was giving pinky promises. Yeah, don't, don't do that right now. Um, so, so I would use the name of Yahweh to make them take my claim that Tim stole my ox more seriously, correct? Now, what if, it, what if it is discovered that Tim didn't take my ox, but my cousin came and took my ox and didn't tell me? What have I just been guilty of? Taking, the God, taking God's name in vain, attaching it to an empty thing. So it's not surprising there, was a, a, there were several laws that regulated oath-taking. Do not use the name of Yahweh 
in your oaths. Make sense so far? Now, because they are immensely creative, they came up with substitutes, in the same way they came up with substitutes for the name, they came up with substitutes for things that referred to Yahweh, but not directly. So instead of saying, you know, I, I swear by Yahweh, you would say, I swear by the temple. Or I would swear by the hair on my head. Tim and I would have a tough time arbitrating that one. I swear by the gold of the temple that this is true. So they came up with substitutes. So they wouldn't be using Yahweh's name, but they would be using things associated with Yahweh. Make sense? And Jesus, oh my goodness, Jesus goes after the Pharisees later in Matthew. Here's, here's some of the nonsense. Um, Woe to you, blind, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by their oath. I mean, how silly is that, right? The idea and the, and the debates, we even have a whole tractate on this in the Mishnah. What vows were binding and what vows could you get out of? The closer the thing you were using as a vow related to Yahweh, the more serious that vow was. So you could say that the Pharisees taught, hey, if you make a vow by the temple, you don't have to keep it. But if you make it by the gold of the temple, then you're bound by that vow. So ridiculous. You fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold uh, sacred? Excuse me. You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, it's bound by their oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So do you see the games they would play? They were given the name. They didn't want to say the name, so they found substitutes for the name. They were demanded not to use the name in oath formula, so they come up with substitutes. Are you with me? Yes! Matthew chapter 5. With all that background in mind. Yes! Now remember, Jesus is explaining what righteousness and justice is like in his kingdom. He's giving us examples, weighing heavy things and light things. Right? To undercut the program of the Pharisees and the scribes, but also to demonstrate the true heart, the fulfillment of Torah. All of that should be familiar if you've been around. So this is another one of his illustrations. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. And this is a, this references like four Old Testament passages that kind of said that. But then Jesus says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black or even exist. All you need to say is simply yes or no, and anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Right, so this is a very famous passage, let your yes be yes, your no be no. In Greek it literally reads, let your word stand on its own. Yes, yes, no, no. Yes. And the thing that's so fascinating is that it's not like Jesus. I mean, Jesus first says, you guys are such hypocrites. It all refers to Yahweh. Jerusalem refers to Yahweh. Your hair refers to Yahweh. The altar refers to Yahweh. So his first rebuke is like, This is ridiculous. You think you can somehow make these arbitrary distinctions about what counts and what doesn't? It's all Yahweh's. 
But then the second thing he does, and the more important thing he does, is get after why do you have to manipulate people by using vow language anyway? That's what he's getting at. It's not just, it's a bad idea. So Jesus is not saying, hey, you can make a promise and break it, no worries. He's not saying that. But he's saying the negative effects of this kind of oath-taking are deeper than whether or not you keep your promise or not. The negative effects of this kind of oath-keeping have to do with using religious language to manipulate other people. Dallas Willard, in his insightful book, The Divine Conspiracy, says this about this uh, command of Jesus. Jesus goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. He knew that they do it to impress others with their sincerity and reliability and thus gain acceptance of what they are saying and what they want. It is a method for getting their way. They are declaring some promise or purpose of some point of information dear to them, and they want their hearers to accept what they say, and they want them to do what they want. So they say, I swear to God, to lend weight to their words. Now this sentence, it is simply a device of what? Manipulation. Designed to override the judgment and will of the ones they are focusing upon and to push them aside rather than respecting them and leaving their decision and action strictly upon them. So what's Jesus doing when he steps? And again, this seems so weird to us, like vows and oaths and all of this stuff. We have contracts and written agreements. Well, it was the same kind of thing. Except not everyone was literate, and so you would make these vows. So we have the holy name of God, the sacred name of God, that was to be used, but not misused. So for fear of misusing it, that Jesus stopped pronouncing it, came up with substitutes. The misuse of the name, though, doesn't have to do with swearing the way we define it, but it has to do with attaching the name of God to empty things. One of the most empty things you could attach the name of God to was an oath. And so there were commandments that prohibited the use of an oath. But the ever-creative human mind came up with all these substitutes. You weren't using the name directly, but you were using all these religious things associated with the name. And then there were immense debates on which of those do you take seriously and which of those can you ignore. And Jesus steps in and says, first of all, guys, come on. That's, that's, how, that's the one word that Jesus, or the one phrase Jesus says to me most. Come on. I don't know if that's true, but it feels like it. Like, come on, Really? Come on, really, he says to these guys? Anything you swear by is holy because it is associated with Yahweh. So then he says, it's simply not better to swear at all. But then he adds, instead of swearing, simply present yourselves to each other honestly and without pretense. You do not need to use manipulative language, religious language to manipulate people. You with me so far? Now, how do we, thousands of years later, use religious language to manipulate people? Hmm, I wonder. I wonder if this has any relevance. We Christians are kings and queens of using religious language to manipulate each other. So let's look at some ways. And, and if you've been guilty of these, the best, what God told me, 
Now, I'm not saying God doesn't tell us stuff, but I'd much, I, I, much tr- I, I much more trust that in hindsight rather than ahead of time. So to use the phrase, God told me, is simply a way to, to have people not question you. Because if you're questioning that, you're questioning who? Yes, John. Yes, John. Yeah. Right. Okay, so what's the best way of go- to go about that other than God told me? All right, how about this? I think you should. It seems like it'd be a great idea if you... Why do you need God there? And how do you even know? Now, I'm not saying we can't know, and, and how we know is a question for another day. But God told me? Man, God tells us some really random petty stuff to tell each other, doesn't he? <laughs> and I just want to say, and, and I'm guilty of all of this, so this is not pointing at anybody except this guy. But God told me is one of the, the predominant ways we try to manipulate each other so that I'm not questioned. Or another way to say that is I, f- I really feel the Lord is leading me. All right, how are you supposed to argue with that? Next, God gave me a vision or a dream. Oh, well, okay. How do you argue with that? It's just, it's, it's used to override. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't give visions. I'm just saying the confidence level I have when people use that statement is about 3%. Because you can only tell in hindsight. Exactly. I cry over this too, young one. Next. God gave me a word for you, or I'm feeling led to tell you. Why dress that up? Why not just say, hey, here's something I think you should know. Why do we have to bring God into this? Like, and if you're, if you're provoked a little bit, yeah, we should be provoked a little bit. Because I would argue we attach God's name to empty things all the time. It doesn't matter whether you use it as a curse word or not. Next. Sometimes churches will use this language, right? God is leading us in this direction. Okay, how are we supposed to argue with that? Maybe you prayed over it for 10 minutes. And a bunch of people sat in a room and decided this was the best thing. Why can't you just say, hey, it feels like we should do this. Why do you have to add God into there? Right? Or in the Jerusalem Council, best example I've seen of how to use this language, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. They write a letter to all the Gentile churches. And they start it by saying, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And I'm like, that sounds about right. And that's the apostles talking. Next. Oh, this is a great one. How many times have you heard the Bible is clear when it's super not? 
And so, if you disagree or have questions, you're arguing with the Bible and you're arguing with God. And we just want to say that's not how the Bible works. The Bible isn't an arbitrator of who's right and who's wrong. The Bible is much bigger than that. Now, it's clear on some things, no question. But there are, as 34,000 denominations will tell you, there's a whole bunch of things it's not clear on. Next. Oh, college students. John, if you ever use this, I will stake you next to an anthill. I got a story for you. Oh. God told me you're the one for me. Now, ladies, have you ever heard this one? Because it's usually men using this with the ladies. Oh, how obnoxious. If, somebody, if some guy ever says that to you, report him to Tim and I. And we'll just, we'll sit down and have a nice conversation with him. Next. God is telling me to date Jesus right now. What, what does that even mean? Where does Jesus ever say, come date me? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. If you don't want to go out with a person, just say no. Next. I'll prayerfully consider it. Now this is my favorite one. If someone asks me something and I want to say no, but they're going to think less of me, this is my go-to. I'll prayerfully consider it. Which means I'm not going to prayerfully consider it, and the answer is already no. I just don't have the integrity to tell you right now. Next. If we just have enough faith, everything will work out. Oof. How, 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 many, how, how many times has that been used to victimize people after something really bad has happened? Oh, Next. Well, Jesus knocked over tables, which means I can be a jerk, and that's fine. In the name of love, next. I don't have a peace about it. I don't care. When does Jesus say you have to have a peace about making big decisions? Like, like this is so individualized and so internalized. This is not the kingdom of God, my friends. But think about how we manipulate, or my favorite, next. I have a check in my spirit. Why not just say I have a concern? I don't know that this is a good idea. Now, hopefully, most of us have been pinged by one or two of these and are guilty. Anyone care to admit yes? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Every single one of them. Yes, particularly those of us of the professional religious class. You dated Jesus in high school. Oh. Susie, you are the best. You, yeah, he, do, he does. He evidently dates a lot of people all at one time, which is... Now... This is semi-silly and semi-serious, right? Because the invitation of Jesus in this command is to simply present ourselves without all of that religious varnish. To not have to say God said and, want, and simply say I said. Not to say God led, but to simply say it seems to me like. To be super cautious and tentative 
Yes, John. Yes. Right. Yeah, John asked, um, is, do, we, do we use some of these statements to sort of make up for my own doubt? So I'm at 51% sure, 49% not. And to fill that in, I just use some of these religious phrases. Absolutely, we use these to hide from each other. We use these to seem more impressive than we are. And we use these to manipulate each other. Now, God, I think, speaks, and I think God leads, but not as cavalierly as we make it out to be, and we have done such damage to each other. We are both perpetrators and victims, and so this morning, what I thought we would do, just in response to this, is just have like two minutes of silence where we don't say anything to God, but we just consider him. And if you do want to say something, which is great, God obviously encourages that, what if we just used like real honest words like, I'm bored, why is this guy flip-flops on, I don't understand, I'm, I, I'm totally guilty of this, I mean, let's like, let's like drop all the pretending for two minutes. We don't need great religious music, we don't need good religious words, we don't need a prayer like thou and thee, formal language to sort of get to God. We can just sit as human beings right now as we are. And we don't need to dress up or pretend at all. And for some of us, maybe there's some repentance. God, I see the ways I use this. And the invitation of Jesus in those moments is let your word stand on its own an unvarnished presentation of you to each other and to God. So, we're gonna take uh, two minutes, which is gonna feel like a long time, and if you have nothing to say, don't say anything. Let's just practice being a church that doesn't have to say anything to impress God. It's just enough that we're here and that God is here. We don't have to polish, we don't have to put on airs, we can just sit. All right? So Lord, would you receive our silence now? Father, we pray for the kind of inner transformation that allows us to present ourselves to you and to each other without artifice, without pretense, without embellishment. Father, would you do the work in us as we open ourselves up to you and do the work with you to become people who simply do not have to manage our image but are content to sit in our limitations, our weakness, our quirks, and to receive your love. I pray, God, for those people who've been hurt by some of these statements. Lord, I pray that you would bring healing to them, help them to forgive. 
And for those of us who, who flippantly use your name, God, would you just remind us and invite us into something truer and deeper. In the name of Jesus, amen. So my friends, there are several ways that we're just gonna respond together. Oh, thank you. One of the things we do is we sing. Now, singing is one of those things that, you know, I like this song or I don't like this song. We kind of sing mindlessly. So maybe we pay attention this morning just to the words. And if we don't mean them, we don't sing them. And we just sort of sit and commun- um, you know, sit in community and participate. But if these are not words we mean or are not true of us, maybe we just sit quietly. It's okay. Communion, it's another place where we get to respond. And as we respond, communions, the table is the place where we come unvarnished. That's where we practice coming as we truly are. In the midst of all of our fallenness, sinfulness, weakness. Everyone is welcome at the table. So we take the bread and the cup together. There are also places, pieces of paper, where people can write down prayers. And so maybe there's a prayer to God. Or maybe there's just an asking for prayer that has to do with the ways in which we talk and present ourselves. So you're invited into all of that for the next several minutes as we worship together.